We'd, I mean, in 25 minutes, it was all over, folks. There was like wrapping paper everywhere. Every gift had been opened. And then these words would always come out of my mouth. I can't wait until next Christmas. Seems like it comes and goes so fast. This year here at Hillcrest, uh, we're doing something that, that not a lot of um, evangelical traditions do necessarily, but celebrating Advent. Now, Advent actually comes before the Christmas season. Advent is kind of like a, like a Lent time where it's all about preparation and getting ready for what God does Christmas morning. And so to do that, we've been having uh, some of our junior highs uh, each week get up and do some Advent readings. So at this time, I would like to invite um, Jack and Scarlett to come on up. And they're going to help us out with the lighting of our candles and some reading. Waiting is hard in a fast-paced society. We want the, spot, the stoplight to change quickly, the grocery lines to move fast, and Christmas morning to arrive soon. We forget that before things happen, preparations must be made. Last week, we lit the prophecy candle and remembered those who first spoke the promise of the coming Christ child. The second candle in the Advent wreath is called the Bethlehem candle. It is a symbol of preparations being made to receive and cradle the Christ child. A reading from the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, but out of you will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Cornelius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went to the town. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, the Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Two candles burning bright, chasing away the darkness from light. Two candles glowing light, the blessing of God giving new sight. Awesome. Thanks, Jack and Scarlett, so much. There's also a... Uh, Thank you guys, you guys did fantastic. There was an ad that uh, posted, if there's elementary school kids left in the audience, uh, they can make their way to the, the gym, I believe. So that's grades uh, kindergarten through grade five. You could be dismissed to the gym. Uh, our juniors are sticking around with us for our Christmas season. Our Christmas series, I should say. Just let me get a little bit organized here. 
So our series is titled this year, Caught Off Guard. For years and years, my mother tried to get her boys great Christmas presents on Christmas. And year after year, my mother failed horribly. She would, she would buy the most random, odd gifts, and she would give them with such excitement, expecting us to just be just lit up and just so excited. And, and somehow, the expressions on our faces at receiving yet again another flashlight that you wind to charge up, or, or a pair of jeans that are stretchy? What? But there was one year that I remember. My mom uh, gave, bought us a gift, and uh, I remember sitting there, opening it, and I was, it was just like every other year. I was kind of expecting it to be one of those gifts that you sort of open, and you're delighted that your mom thought of you and loves you, but you kind of roll your eyes saying, this will be re-gifted, right? <laughs> Anyways, I opened this package, and my mom seemed unusually excited this year. Uh, on the edge of her seat as I opened her gift. And uh, as I opened it up, I couldn't believe what I saw. It was green and white. And I pulled it out, and it was a Rough Rider jersey. Not, not a cheaply made one that you'd find off of a, a rack at some you know, grocery store or something like that, but an actual, authentic Rider jersey. And to my amazement, I opened up this jersey and I seen that it had the number 71, which that's a long story. I won't even get into you. If you have time to take me out for coffee, I'll tell you all about it sometime. <laughs> a number that's really important to me. And it has Drinan written across the back. And I couldn't hold my tears. I was just so excited. It was a gift that I was like, hadn't even expected. And yet it just hit the mark. It totally caught me off guard. And for this series, we're looking at gifts that God gives us. And they're gifts that are meant and intended to catch us off guard in a way about God's love for us and the plan that he has for us. And last week, uh, we heard from Pastor Steve, uh, and he talked a lot about hope. And uh, each week, we're pulling out a gift. And as you can see over here, the gift that was pulled out last week was a, was a, a sailboat. Looks like a, looks like a pretty epic pirate ship, actually. A boat called Hope, and about the hope that God gives us. And the reality that our hope isn't just in, in something that, that the Bible says, but that our, our hope rests in a person, the person of God, and just how powerful that is. And this week, we're moving on, and we're going to be talking about, well, I'm going to make you wait for a little bit before I tell you what we're talking about. Before we get there, and before I reveal the gift, um, I'd like to walk through a couple of scriptures for you. Now, this is, this is my favorite part about preaching. I just got to be honest with you. When I get a chance to preach and study scripture, I, like, I just come alive in my office. There's squeals of excitement and delight, which each commentary that I read or each line that I read, and the, the Spirit impresses things onto my heart, I just, I just get really excited. So for some of you, you'll have to just bear with me. Uh, and others of you, I, I trust that as we encounter God's word together this morning, that there's going to be an element of, of challenge, where God is going to speak and encourage and challenge you. So let's pray and ask God's spirit uh, to speak to us. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the reason for the season. We thank you that you are a God who comes bearing great gifts for us if we'll just hold out our hands to receive them. Lord, would you at this time, would you come and be in our midst? By your spirit, would you take uh, words that were written down and spoken long ago, would you apply them fresh to our hearts and to our lives? Lord, that there would be encouragement here this morning at the reading of your word. Uh, The first passage of scripture that I'd like to explore with you guys this morning is found in Micah. It was actually read uh, this morning during the Advent reading. And I'd like to back up just two verses on it. It's found in uh, uh, Micah, and it's, we're looking at chapter 5, and we're going to look at verse 1 here for, for the first part. Now, this is the prophet Micah speaking, and this is, this is 700 years before what we know is the Christmas story event that takes place. And here's what, here's what the first part of the, of the prophecy says. Micah says, Marshal your troops now, city of troops. He's talking about Jerusalem. For a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Now, Micah here, is a, as the Spirit of the Lord has come upon him, he's, he's prophesying, speaking about something that's going to be taking place in the future. And in his mind, he sees that Jerusalem is going to be laid siege to. In fact, he refers to it as a city of troops, surrounded, or daughter of troops. They always referred to cities as in the, in the feminine, so, so daughter of troops. And so in his mind, he sees Jerusalem completely surrounded by troops. Now, for the Israelite nation, this would not be news that they want to hear. There are people that have, have done their best to follow God, and yet time after time, they've wandered. They've had kings that have wandered off, and rather than serving the Almighty God, the Creator, they've kind of gone their own way and led the nation astray. And this siege isn't judgment or wrath from a, from a vindictive God. This is a much-deserved act of discipline from a loving Father. Because God promised, if you follow me, things will go well with you. If you turn away from me, then I'll use other nations to bring about discipline. And so this is the context with which Micah is speaking. On to verse 2 it says, and here he quotes as though it's, it's, this is what God is saying. He says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. It's neat how Old Testament prophecy works. There's always sort of this doom and gloom, this current situation of what we're going to need to face, and then out of it comes this messianic promise. Or this message of hope that's meant to stir their hearts and encourage them. And so, as I looked into Bethlehem, I found another, a couple of things that were very, very interesting to me. Did you know that there's two Bethlehems in Palestine? I didn't really know that. And as I got looking into it, I found out that this, I feel like that becomes significant for the word that the Lord wants to share with us today. But I'm going to get to that a little bit later. Bethlehem is also known as uh, 
the city of bread or house of bread. And how appropriate that the Messiah would come out of the house of bread. The one who would be said of that he is the, uh, he is the bread of life himself. So interesting. God says in this passage, he says that though you are small among the clans of Judah, out from you, for me, will come one. I just think it's so neat that it's not an honor that Bethlehem has because it's such a great and prominent city. No, it's actually small and somewhat insignificant. And yet, by God's decree, he said, out of you is going to come the Messiah. I find that so interesting. It's specific. He names Bethlehem Ephrathah, which is talking about the Bethlehem. There's a, a Bethlehem in the north that's actually quite close to Nazareth. And then there's a Bethlehem that's south, um, south from um, Jerusalem that this is the Bethlehem that he's talking about. The city of David. This is where King David was born. And then it goes on, and here we have the prophet's words again. And here, it's almost like he's vision casting a little bit. That if, if this center chunk of this is the prophecy, this is what God has spoken, now it's the prophet filled with the Spirit envisioning what that's going to look like. And it says, Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Isn't that amazing that this was spoken 700 years before the Messiah would actually come? And for those of us, if, you, if you're a Christian and you've, you've been around and you've encountered these stories before, you know now too that that Jesus has come. And now, as Kurt kind of eloquently talked about this morning, that we're sort of in those in-between times, that Christ has come, but now we're waiting on him coming again. That they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. That we're kind of in that in-between time even now. That on one hand, this prophecy was fulfilled in the coming of Christ, and on the other hand, there's a, there's a nature of it, an element of it, where we're still, in ex, we're still expecting something, waiting, longing for that to be fully realized. I like to look now, I love the way that these two scriptures play together, because this first passage out of Micah, and I'm going to look at one out of Luke here in a moment, but this passage out of Micah utters something prophetic, something to come in the future. And if you think about it, it's something that only God himself can bring about. There's no way that this can be manipulated. I mean, they con Israel constantly had people rising up to power, uh, asserting themselves, uh, you know, the kings kind of uh, uh, asserting their authority and their leadership, and, and yet getting led astray. And so by human efforts, we see that, that, that Israel's line of kings just weren't getting the job done. They continually led the nation away from God and faced wrath and judgment as a result of that. And yet God is saying a ruler is coming who will have a heart after the Lord, be strong in his name, and will shepherd his flock. One who will stand strong. Now that's something only God himself can do. 
Prophecy speaks about the sovereignty of our God. I thought that was kind of cool. Do you, do you ever... I wrestle sometimes in my own life with, with this tension between God's sovereignty and what I'm supposed to do. Because if God is sovereign, if he is who he says he is, and there's lots in the Bible that says, you know, the word of the Lord will never come to fail. That whatever he says happens. I mean, he's the almighty God. He's sovereign over all things. There's nothing that escapes his eye or, or, or his understanding. He's sovereign over all things. And I can't help but kind of feel in that, that go, go well, what's, what's my role in that? Or do I have a role in that? I'll put up a, a quote here from a commentary that I thought was really interesting. And he's speaking specifically about this passage of Micah. He says, Whenever a prophet foretold the future, it was to awaken the people to their responsibilities in the present. You see, sometimes we have, a, we have a tendency to hear what God wants to say and say, okay, that's good. Like, God's, God's going to do it. And yet the prophets of old weren't just speaking on God's behalf, saying this is going to happen no matter what, and that's it. But it was actually meant to engage the people to rally them that says, if this is what God is saying, how can we get ready? How can we prepare? What does that, what, what is the response of us that God is looking for? And so we're left with these two tensions between God's sovereignty on the one hand and our responsibility on the next. And how do those two things come together? Now, I've often been told that, you know, you probably shouldn't preach a message on God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in the same message because you're going to ruin two really good sermons. But, but I'm hoping to offer you today that the theme of, of this Advent, this Sunday in Advent, actually has a way of drawing these two ideas together. But before we get there, let's take a look over at Luke. So we're in Luke chapter 2. And here we go. Mm, I need to do a back some background. So here we go. We're jumping into Luke. Luke is amazing, like uh, like amazing in his writing. Okay, how many of you guys love birth announcements? Whoa. Okay, wrong crowd. Oh, there was a few. There's ladies. The lights are a little bright. I know one birth announcement I'm looking forward to very shortly. Okay, Luke loves birth announcements. The way that he writes the first part, the first chapter of his book, he's talking a lot about John the Baptist and about how John the Baptist is preparing the way for the coming Messiah. He builds up this story of John the Baptist talking about it, pointing it towards Christ, and then for John the Baptist's birth announcement, he gives him two verses. He says, John was born, fell with the Spirit, da 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 kind of moves on, okay? Now we come to Jesus' birth announcement, and Luke has a field day. He takes 20 verses to make a birth announcement. He's drawing it out and he's pulling some themes together because he wants his audience to know it's not about the guy who's proclaiming and pointing to the Messiah, though he is important, but the real thing that we need to be looking at, the real thing we need worthy of our attention is this Messiah who has come. 
And so we've already kind of encountered in the story how uh, Mary was visited by an angel and told that she was going to have a son. She was betrothed to another man, or she was betrothed to Joseph, and they weren't married yet, and they, they had no union, and yet God shows up to her and tells her, you're, you're going to have the Messiah. And Mary asks, you know, how, you know, how can this kind of be? And uh, the angel encourages her and says, you know, you found favor with God, and God's going to do it, because the word of the Lord never fails. And as you can imagine, um, Joseph, getting the news that his wife was expecting, felt a little out of the loop and was, you know, maybe thinking about, like, divorcing her quietly so that she wouldn't be disgraced. And yet, he goes to sleep one night and he has a dream. And an angel shows up to him and says, Joseph, don't resist what, the, what, the, what God is doing. For what is happening in Mary's body is from God. So Joseph changes his tune, is okay with it, and our story continues on. So we jump into the birth of Jesus now. Here's the birth announcement. Look, look what Luke does here first. He says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This is the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. Boring, right? Who starts off a baby announcement like that? Like with um, historical details. And yet, Luke, a writer, is not ignorant to what the prophet Micah has said 700 years ago. Oh no. Luke knows that the prophet or that the Messiah to come is going to be born in Bethlehem. He knows that. He doesn't say it, but he knows it. And so what is he doing here? He's drawing together sort of this detail of the reality of God's sovereignty. Keep in mind, Mary and Joseph, they're living in not Bethlehem. They're hanging out in Nazareth, right? And yet somehow, on a political level, there's this decree that ushers them down to Bethlehem, to the town of David, where the prophecy was. There's no way that, that mankind can make that happen. That shows the sovereignty of God to take world events and use them for his glory. Now, I'm not, I'm not one to really commentate politically on what's happening in our world, um, and so I won't. But there's been some crazy stuff kind of going on about people making their own decrees. And I just think as much as there's kind of like a, a fear or an unsettlement that happens in me, we have to realize that even though it seems out of control, it's not out of God's hands. It's not beyond his control. In fact, God is able to use People that don't even acknowledge him, want nothing to do with him, stand in opposition to him. God in his sovereignty is able to bend their will and use those decisions for his glory. And there should be a great sense of hope that arises in us with that reality. A great sense of trust. 
Anyways, we move on. So verse 4, it says that, So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the line of David. Joseph responded. It was decreed he had to go, so he went. There was a responsibility on Joseph's part to obey there. He could have, I guess he could have went against the political decree, but he didn't. He went with it. Yet the choice was still his. Next it says here, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. He went there with Mary. Sometimes I try and put myself in Joseph's shoes to get to, get, to enter the Christmas story from his perspective. And, and I think... Um, how, how can I go about this? Um, think about life before Mary, okay? Think about life before, um, before the angel visited you, before you'd met Mary, before there was any notion of a, of a Messiah. Joseph is from the town of Bethlehem. Those are his people, okay? David's city. Um, you know, I, I rattled on about, um, about a rider jersey earlier. Think, think about it in that notion about, like, small-town pride. Saskatchewan has tons of that. And you can imagine uh, Joseph uh, being really stoked about being from Bethlehem. You know, this is David's city. Remember David, the guy who fought Goliath and won? The greatest king Israel had ever known? I wonder, I wonder what the sports team's names would be like in Bethlehem. Have you ever thought about that? Do you think, do you think it was the Bethlehem Giants? Maybe? No, I know. Probably Bethlehem Herdsmen. Or today it'd be Herds people, right? Herds people. Um, or how about, how about how the Bethlehem slings? Hey, that's kind of got a ring to it. Um, what was that? I, I think it was probably the Bethlehem Kings, to be honest with you. I think that would be their sports team. And anyways, anytime that, you know, uh, Joseph's hanging out with his buddies in Nazareth and they're talking and all of a sudden the topic of Bethlehem came up, he, everybody knows that the prophecy is that the king is going to be, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Joseph would have been so stoked. He'd have been like, yeah, that's my city. That's my team. The Messiah is coming from my hometown. And there'd be a real rah, rah moment. At least that's how I imagine it. But now put yourself in Joseph's shoes. You're about to get married. She gets pregnant. You know it's not yours. And as far as you know, there's only one way that babies are made. Okay? Even back then, they knew this. They didn't need science at home. <laughs> and so what happens in your heart in that situation? Wouldn't there be some doubt? Wouldn't there be some, what is going on? I don't believe this. He had every right to divorce her and want to get rid of her. And yet, an angel pays him a visit and it, that encounter alone changes Joseph to understand that this isn't something that is on Mary's head of doing wrong, but that this is something God is doing. And the matter becomes resolute in his heart, unshakable. Joseph knows what God is up to. 
And then there's a decree to head to your hometown. And the timing couldn't be more awkward because Mary is showing. You ever thought about that? Not only was he with somebody else, even though the, the matter was resolute in his own heart, how do you think everybody else would respond to that situation? With the accusatory glances or the, the murmuring behind your shoulders. Nobody else was buying into that the Holy Ghost had conceived in Mary. What a tough situation. And to make matters worse, now there's this decree to go home. I'm sorry, but if I ever found myself in, in Joseph's situation, I would want to fly out to the coast or go somewhere as far away from my hometown because there'd be a sense of, of shame. Cultural shame. I mean, it's not, the stigmatism isn't as bad today, but think about it back then. The shaming that would have happened. And yet... On one hand, the sovereignty of God makes it that, Joseph, you have no choice but to go. And he goes. And he takes Mary with him. I just think that's amazing. That just says something about the kind of guy Joseph is. It's not that, you know, babes, you wait here. I'll go. I'll sign the documents. We'll get registered. I'll come back. You know, it's not that. He takes her with him. And they head down. And then we have it here in, um, in uh, verse 5. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married and with him and was expecting child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them in the inn. And out of Joseph's responding to God, he comes. And together, him and Mary witness this most miraculous event of his baby Jesus being born. And they shared that together. Wow. And I just can't help that with, with these two ideas of, of the, the prophecy from Micah showing the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, that these two ideas coming together in prayer or in, well, this is the gift God wants to give us. In faith. That somehow the bridge between understanding God's sovereignty and our responsibility is faith. What does faith mean? It means to trust God. Now, as for the gift, which I'm actually quite excited about this, uh, I think it works as a, as a great illustration to help us think about faith. So that's what I'm going to propose to you. There we go. Oh, and there goes faith. A hiking backpack. Isn't that awesome? Who, would, who wouldn't be so excited to get this for Christmas? Yeah, a few of you? How many of you would actually use it if you got it for Christmas? Whoa, that's pretty good. I am not one of those people. That is a backpack that has been collecting dust for a while now. I used it a couple of times, uh, camping trips, uh, because I was dragged along and once uh, backpacking Europe. 
But I think that if we, if we think of faith like a backpack, I think there's some helpful notions that come out of it. And that's what I'd like to explore in the rest of our time together with you today. First one being this. Faith is an invitation to a great adventure. Faith is an invitation to a great adventure. Now, imagine if I'd gotten this great hiking backpack for Christmas, and then it just proceeded to just sit in my storage shed outside for the rest of its existence. What good would it be to me? Not a lot. I could still tell people, I've got a biking backpack. It's Gregory. It's great. I love it. But if I never use it, it doesn't do me any good, does it? JJ probably has a name for those guys that like give the impression of being a hiker but aren't. I don't know, because I know he loves to hike. You know, and I could, I could even go one step further. I could, I could collect badges from countries all over the world or, or trail tags, you know, and I could sew them on this backpack and I could be really proud of it. But does it do me any good? No. Faith is an invitation, you guys, to be a part of the great adventure that God is telling. Absolutely, he is sovereign. But if you don't put your faith in him, you don't get to experience it. And so there's a part of us, there's a part of the, of the reality that faith is like a backpack, it's an invitation, and we experience it when we actually put it on. Oh boy. <laughs> so it's been a while. <sighs> kind of like, whew, I'm going to lose my breath. Okay. There we go. Yeah. It's the first day the pastor passes out. You know? It's just the spirit. Just the spirit. Um, so, so. <laughs> And I know a lot of you can relate to this because I know that there's probably a few of you in the audience here who for your husbands, for Christmas, you have bought him a pass to some gym in town, okay? Okay, as a gift, as a, as a generous gesture to say, honey, I love you just the way you are. Here's a pass to Yara, right? And what does that, what does that pass what good does it do him if he never uses it? If he never walks through the door, shows the past, and has the experience of that? Faith is an invitation to a great adventure with God. The second one. Once you decide, okay, I'm going to pony up here. Christmas, I'm going to donkey up here. We're going to go on this great adventure with God. You put on your backpack. You, you put on faith. You commit to it. You say, God, I trust you. Here we go. Here's, here's something you're going to notice. Your faith is perfectly tailored to you. It's got some adjustments, just like there's some straps on here for adjusting how it fits to make it a little more comfortable so you don't get sore, so that you're up for the task, so that you're up for the journey. Your faith, the faith that God has given you, is perfectly tailored to you. Now, sure, there's going to be a time where you might need to do a, a few adjustments here and there. 
but that it's a faith that you should be able to wear quite comfortably because it's what God has designed for you. Think about, think about David before he was king and how that whole situation with Goliath panned out. Remember, he shows up, he sees Goliath, he sees him as an enemy of God, not the enemy just of Israel, and he says, this is crazy. I know that God's bigger than this guy. We can take him. I can take him. Put me in. So he goes and he talks to Saul, and Saul goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. if you're serious about this, David, we appreciate your courage. Here, put on my armor. And so Saul decks David out in his armor, his helmet, his sword, and everything, and there's David standing, and you know what he found? It didn't fit. It wasn't going to work. So David said, forget it. I don't need this stuff. And he takes the helmet off. I mean, who in their right mind goes into a battle against a warrior in a warrior culture without any armor on? To me, that seems crazy. To David, it made perfect sense. Because his faith was tailored to him. He knew who his God was. He knew he didn't need Saul's armor to defeat Goliath. Instead, he heads out with a sling and some stones. And yet we all know how that great adventure turned out. One giant falling, losing his head. Amazing. Because David's faith was tailored to him and he followed the leading of God. Wow. Number three. Faith is used to carry things. You know, who, who wears a hiking backpack that's empty? Nobody. You only carry a backpack when you've got stuff you need to, you need to carry, you need to transport, something that's going to be useful. And so just, just the same for us, that our faith, you guys, is meant to carry things. Certain things that are going to be useful and helpful on your journey. You know, maybe there'll be a bedroll in there, a tent to keep the rain off you. Likely be some food. Probably should be a change of clothes. Word of caution on the change of clothes, though. So here I am, Bible school, Watt mission trip, totally stoked to go to Africa. It's my second time going. I'm pretty pumped. The first time I'd went, we'd bought these massive military-grade green duffel bags. Okay? And we just threw our stuff in there, and they were easy to handle. They were, like, indestructible, and so you just drag them around. This was before there was wheels mounted on the bottom of everything. And so I went to Africa the second time, and I, clearly I didn't learn my lesson from the first time, because I went, uh, I filled this thing, packed it full of pants, changed clothes, packed everything in, went to my mission, had a fantastic mission. This thing was a little bit burdensome, dragging around the airports and stuff like that, and enduring, like, our 10- and 12-hour layovers and 8-hour flights and yada, yada, yada. It was a bit of a beast. Then I got home, and I uns- made, like, we made it through customs, everything like that. I get home. Uh, I think I went visiting friends for a while, so this thing sat in my hot car for like a week, and was gross. And I get home, kitchen table, I thump this thing on, and like, mom's going to look after my laundry. I'm like, hey, mom, love that. Unzip this thing. For one, it reeks. It's just disgusting. 
On the other hand, I'm finding like wildlife from Africa that had snuck into my bag. There was like, there was a worm that was black and had red legs that was this long. I'm like, how did you make it through customs? And my one regret is I flushed them down the toilet and so there's no evidence of this. I wish I would have kept them. I'm like, who knows what Saskatchewan would be like with, you know. Would have been kind of cool. I think they were called, referred to as the Mombasa train. So if, if you want to Google that later, you can. But anyways, as I'm going out and I'm pulling out all my stinky laundry here, I get to one section of my bag that represents about a third of the space. And it's a stack of pants and shirts that I never wore. And it hit me. I just dragged like 15 pounds worth of material around Africa. I hauled it across the world. And I didn't even use it. I mean, it needed to be washed because it stank. But I didn't use it. And you know what I think? I think sometimes with our faith, we carry things that are useless. That we have no business carrying. As I was preparing for this message and kind of praying through this, I got this vision that sometimes we're out, we're hiking on this hill, we're on this amazing adventure with God, and he's just a little bit ahead of us, and he's saying, come on, you're going to love what's over this next, this next uh, cliff or this next area around the bend. Come on. And I just picture sometimes there's us, and we're dragging a mattress up the hill. And for whatever reason, we're like, God's like, leave the mattress. Come on and see this. And we're going, no, I need this mattress. This is important. I can't leave it behind. Picture that. Rains come. The weather turns bad. This mattress soaks up all this water, gets dirty. We won't even sleep on it now anyways because it's gross. There's mold growing on it. And yet sometimes we're like, by faith, we're like, no, Lord, this has to come. And God's just like, ah, oh, I've given you everything that you need. You don't need that. You need to let it go. So some of us, our faith is like a backpack. Some of us, there's things we need to add to that backpack that God wants to make uh, known to you. Maybe it's, maybe it's Bible reading. Maybe it's getting a good support network. Friends, Christian friends. Maybe it's just as simple as attending church regularly. Maybe it's praying as a family. There's something that God is saying, this is important. You need to add this to your backpack. But for other of us, we're dragging a wet, soaking mattress. And God says, you need to let it go. You need to let it go. Fourthly and finally, on my list here, faith means that we never travel alone. Faith means that we never travel alone. I think back to the Christmas story. We spent a little bit of time in, uh, in Joseph's head. What about Mary's head? Like she was, the, she was the one, in that culture, she's the one that's getting the brunt of the accusations, hearing the murmurings. And she, I mean, she's the one carrying the evidence, right? 
And yet, how cool that she wasn't all alone. God saw fit to show up in a dream to Joseph and say, hey, you need, this isn't a time to run. This is a time to stand in there because God is on the move. And I think, I don't know how it, how it actually worked in that culture if, if Joseph was actually obligated to take Mary down to Bethlehem or not. But he did. But they got to make that trip together. He wasn't alone. And for us, we need to know also that we are not alone. That the nature of, of going hiking and spending time out in the woods is that, that there's an element where absolutely God is always there with us. That our faith is our trust in him. That relationship is secure. He's not going anywhere. You're never alone because God is with you. And on the other hand, we get to go through life with traveling companions. I think that's so great. I know... I probably could have survived life without getting married. I know that. There is no way that I would be able to survive children without my wife, though. No way. And my children, more importantly, would not survive without Jenna. If it was just me. So we get that God calls us into relationship with other people to do life together. Who might it be that God wants you to be traveling with in this great adventure? Maybe there's a phone call that you need to make to make things right. Or maybe there's a relationship that God has maybe had on your heart for a while that you need to persevere in a little bit. It's not just about you having a companion on this trip, but what about you being a companion to somebody else? Maybe God has nudged your heart and will this Christmas season about people that you need to come alongside and journey with them. And maybe they're people that just have no hope. Maybe they, they're having a hard time latching onto this hope that God offers. And maybe they're not quite at the place where they're ready to say, I'm putting my faith in them. God wants to use you to catch them off guard with the faith that he's put in you. That unshakable confidence in God's sovereignty that draws us into the realm where we, we take it on as our responsibility to love like him. To represent him to the rest of the world. I'm just going to, at this time, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up.